This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenems might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenems, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are yet tuned in to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Now, this episode is going to be part two to our two-part series featuring Dr. Alfred Atanda. I hope you all enjoyed our last episode. Again, this topic is a little bit different, something we don't cover all the time, you know, physician well-being, things of that sort. And, and this is, again, a really important topic to uh, to learn and to understand. And this episode, we talk about some of the other side of things. We talk about physician burnout. We also talk some about making passive income as a physician. And we talk about a variety of things. We finished up talking about contracts. Um, you know, a lot of great things to learn and to know about, especially as a resident and as a young physician. So again, please hit the subscribe button. Um, Dr. Tana did a great job. So if you also want to see some YouTube videos or see some of the slides, because, you know, we have slides with almost every episode, check us out on YouTube. If you're a visual person, you like to see things, and you like to see what we're talking about on this podcast. Yes, even for this episode, there is a YouTube video as well. So without further ado, please hit the subscribe button and we will see you all again next week or during the week next week. <laughs> You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. And then just a few other things. Um, so what's the call schedule going to be like? What are your night duties going to be like? How often are you going to take call? Do you get paid to take call? That's another big thing. At our institution, we do not get paid to take call. Um, I know oh, okay. um, at other places they do. You know, So every call you take, you get paid two grand a weekend or whatever, and people are fighting over it. Um, just to do it. Whereas in other places, if you're not compensated, then you can see how that can be an issue. So you just want to be aware of that. Um, for private places, is it going to be, you going to have any opportunity to be, to be partner or to buy into the practice, to buy into the MRI suite, buy into the surgery centers? Um, for us at like academic health systems, that's not so applicable. Opportunities for leadership. Do you see yourself being a program director, fellowship director, residency director, chairperson? Um, in terms of retirement, what's, what's, what's the benefit structure look like 401k and retirement plan, and then malpractice tail coverage. So on the off chance that you change um, practices or you leave the first organization that you get your job in, is the malpractice going to cover you? And then what's the malpractice coverage going to be like when you're actually at your institution? So, yeah, I think those are all, you know, definitely great points as far as contracts and 
being able to figure out the different parts to what you need to know. And I, and I know when I go back and re-listen and edit this, I'm going to take some more notes, uh, <laughs> some more notes down on these different things, because I'll probably be going into that pretty soon. And there's a lot of residents. I'll be going into that as well. Sure. And I, I wanted to, again, great points out there, Tonda. And I, I kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit. Okay. And because I know that you, I mean, you give many talks on you know physician uh, wellness and physician burnout as well. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, at least in my experience in the past, wasn't talked about as much. And just like you were just making a couple of the points on kind of the uh, thought or kind of, I guess, the culture with, you know, medicine that you're supposed to do a lot of these things on your own time. And for a long time, physician burnout wasn't talked about. But what are your in your experience, what have you seen, I guess, physician, like, what does physician burnout look like? You know, how do we recognize it? You know, I feel like there are certain times where I may be getting burned out as well with this podcast of being in residency. Uh, so what are some of the things that, you know, we should note about physician, uh, physician burnout per se? Yeah. Um, I mean, burnout is, is a buzzword that's, that's common in, in medical and lay literature. Now, uh, when I was coming up, I mean, I almost never heard this term in medical school and residency. And if I did, it was really to refer to somebody who wasn't tough enough and, and just couldn't handle it. And we now know that it's an enormous epidemic. Um, and it's something that was well established way before COVID, um, but COVID obviously exacerbated it and made it a lot worse. Um, when we look at kind of, you know, orthopedists and whether or not they're de- burnt out or dis- depressed, we have data from recent surveys that have shown, you know, up to 35, 40% of uh, orthopedic surgeons are either burnt out, depressed, or both. Um, and that it's had a pretty significant impact on their lives. And, as I mentioned, it started well before uh, the pandemic. And when we look at, you know, what CRIP contributes to it, and we have a few slides to show a lot of it at the top is bureaucratic tasks that you can see. Some of the things that we do to cope with burnout um, is exercising, but also people are doing not so productive things like eating junk food, sleeping, using drugs, drinking excessive amounts of alcohol. But scary enough is that most people aren't planning or have not ever sought professional mental health care almost 70% of the time. And we know that, you know, up to 50% of orthopedic surgeons in general, trainees and, um, you know, faculty members uh, do display burnout. Here are the signs and symptoms. I mean, when you look at these things, um, emotional withdrawal, cynicism, irritable behavior, workplace conflict, this sounds like residency, you know? Oh, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I mean, what, me. you talk about people. burnout. This sounds like just going to work. Irritable <laughs> behavior and workplace conflict. You can take that oh, and man. bold it, italicize it, frame it, hang it up on the wall of every operating room in this. Con- I mean, irritable behavior. How many times have you come across a surgeon that's oh, yeah. irritated or, you know, con- uh, listen, don't even get me started. When I think about the days when I was in your shoes, maybe younger, like an intern of two, and I was going to take call like on a Saturday, I would be, you know, in the call room, just getting prepared. It's like you're gearing up for battle, right? You're getting your shield, you're getting your sword, <laughs> putting on your, your bulletproof vest on, getting your straps on and everything, because you are going to battle, whether it be the emergency room, 
the internal medicine docs, the peds docs, docs from outside hospitals giving you a call. And it's just, you were just trying to survive. You know what I mean? And you were getting, they're like landmines everywhere. And, you know, I'm a very kind of calm, quiet guy, but even me, I mean, you know, conflict is, is a big word, but you always at least get into some sort of disagreement or whose service a patient should be on. But oh, my yes. point is, you know, that's so, that's like the knee jerk. You know, you know, when you get a phone call and you look at, you know, back in my day it was a pager and you look at the number and you see it's from the emergency room right then and there, like your endorphins start racing, you start sweating a little <laughs> bit, you're already upset. Because oh, it's still a pager. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, it's still the pager. Same, same endorphins. <laughs> but, so you you know, as a resident, I don't have to tell you, you know the conflict is just ingrained in your brain and your in the culture that we work in. So when I was reading through this stuff, I was like, you know, I was expecting to see like some really significant um symptoms and you know, depersonalization diminished interest in providing safe and optimal care. So even as an attending, you know, I'm going to clinic tomorrow. Let's say I show up, there's 20 patients on my schedule. And then throughout the day, two or three of them fall off for whatever reason, they're just not coming. I'm not like, Oh my God, you know, what's wrong with these patients? I, I got to give them a call. I got to check in on them. I'm like, Oh, thank God. That's three less patients that I have to see. You know, like you start thinking of patient care as work, right? It's, it's, it's not, all glitzy and glamorous the way it was when you were like a second or third year medical student. It's just more work to do. Just like when you're a resident, the ER calls you for a consult. And then by the time you get down there, like, oh no, you know, the patient left AMA or we don't need a consult anymore. You're like, okay, you check it off your box and you keep moving, you know? And that's what people also consider depersonalization, right? Because these are people, but you kind of take the personal aspect out of it and translate it into work. So Long story short is we are all on this spectrum at some point and you get more or less on this spectrum, depending on the year of training you are and depending on what's going on. But I was shocked when I started this work because I know for a fact I have been along the burnout spectrum. So, oh yeah, me too, for sure. <laughs> when we talk about the drivers of burnout, you can see all the things here, decreased meaning in work, excessive workload, inefficient processes. Um, but I kind of get into it a little bit more practically. So I talk about burnout as filling up your gas tank, right? So every morning you wake up, you have a full tank of gas and you are just ready to go. You're fresh. You have your coffee. If you drink coffee, I don't. But anyway, if you take a shower and yeah, you're ready either. to go, <laughs> but then there's professional things that wear us down. And then there's personal things that wear us down. And when we start professionally, um, so decreased meaning in work, you know, sometimes you're doing work that doesn't mean all that much to you and you're just on a rotation and you're just trying to get through it. Um, or you're seeing patients that have problems that you don't necessarily resonate with. Obviously excessive workload, excessive work hours is huge specifically for trainees. Oh my God. Don't even start on inefficient processes. Anybody who works in an academic center knows that there are just processes out there that are just meant to screw you, right? Like you just have to do all of these, what we call workarounds, all of these extra things just to get a job done. I mean, how many times have you been on call on the weekend and, and you have a patient in the ER that needs surgery and you yourself push them to the operating room because you know that that's the fastest way to get them there. You know, I don't know if people still do that. I did that a bunch. Oh yeah. Oh no, we've done the same thing. When I got and, the patient just to get everything moving. Right. And you would think, that the system would have processes in place 
so that your patients can get from point A to point B without you having to intervene. But sometimes it's inefficient and it's the weekend or it's late at night and it all falls on you as the physician, which is unfortunate. Um, lack of autonomy and flexibility, this is key. Even as, a, even as an attending, I mean, you think as a resident, you don't have control over what you do. Try having what you do directly correlate to someone else making money. So my presence at the hospital is key. If my, my eight-year-old comes up to me today and says, hey, daddy, you know, next Thursday, we're going to the Philadelphia Zoo. I was wondering if you could be a chaperone. That's impossible, right? There's no way I could do that. A, there's a whole bunch of patients that are already scheduled. B, I need administrative approval six weeks in advance to be able to cancel a clinic. And wow. that's a little bit shocking since I'm the surgeon and I'm doing the work that brings the patients to my clinic. You know, they're coming to right. see me and I'm, you know, not to sound arrogant, but in general, we tend to be one of the more educated, professional, experienced, talented folks that work in the hospital. Yet we have the least amount of control over what we do every day. And you want to talk about a driver of burnout when you start to realize that that's pretty demoralizing. You know, when you have to ask somebody who's half your age, in order to get, you know, administrative leave, regulatory issues. So HIPAA and compliance and legal and, and compl uh, all that other stuff that, you know, all those extrinsic things that dictate the work that we do. If there's a misalignment with culture and values, moral distress, if, you know, obviously if you've had an untoward event, a complication of death, you know, these are things that weigh on you that you need to carry around emails and meetings. Oh my God, don't even get me started on this. I mean, how many emails we get a day, about various things. And they're not emails like, oh, hey, Dr. Atanda, you know, happy Monday. Just wanted to make sure. Oh, no, never that. Okay. <laughs> not even as a resident. No, it's why didn't you close this chart? This mom is upset. You need to read this MRI. This ER attending's mad because you were rude to them. I mean, those are the kind of emails yeah. that you get and they pile on and you have to read them. Sometimes they're infuriating. Sometimes you have to respond. Sometimes you now have to like log into something because of it. And it takes up a lot of time. Other people, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan, but I think Jerry Seinfeld said it the worst, the best, excuse me. He said, I can't stand people. They're the worst. Because yeah. if you think of every issue, every pressing matter, everything that's really ticked you off that's ever happened to you in your medical career, I guarantee you every single one of them has involved another human being in some which way, shape or form, whether it be a co-resident a med student, somebody you report to, a patient, staff member, anybody. And just navigating your interpersonal relationships on a day-to-day -day basis with people can be completely draining. Um, because I always talk about how we are not trained to communicate and interrelate with other people. Like we don't get formal training in that. We just kind of just learn it trial by fire. And you can imagine, you know, when you're dealing with those other doctors and those consults and the ER and all that stuff, how much emotion bubbles up into that. And if you don't know any better, which a lot of us don't, you can get kind of taken over by that. And it wears you out over time. And as you know, residency training is long, but your career is even longer and it's day in and day out. And last but not least, um, a couple other things. So obviously, Closing charts, computer-based training, the electronic health record can be an issue. And then I always put on here yourself. Um, if you're anything like me, if you're type A, neurotic, 
perfectionist. I mean, you drive yourself mentally into the ground, you know, comparing yourself to other docs, other residents, other people. Am I fast enough? Am I smart enough? Did I score high enough on my oides? Are my numbers good enough? Like we constantly push and compare ourselves to other people, which can bring us down, you know, because that's how we got to where we are by kind of pushing ourselves. But it gets to a point where it can be counterproductive. Um, so in terms of the professional side of things, that's kind of my list there. And then briefly, I go through all the personal things that are drivers of burnout. So if you have kids, obviously, you know, kids, they don't care that you work many hours and, oh, you're, no. tired and you're frustrated. When I come home, my kids are like, oh, daddy, I need $2. Oh, my password doesn't work. Oh, my belly hurts. I'm hungry. He kicked me. You know, that's, that's all you get. Nobody is there supporting you after a long day. And, you know, you may be married, have a spouse, significant other who needs your time and your affection and your energy. If you have family members around or have pets, you just saw me earlier dealing with my two cats. Yeah, cats. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care that I'm <laughs> trying to shoot a podcast. Right. They want to be pet. They need to be fed. You know, friends, you know, I have a lot of friends and and most of them are not in healthcare. The, the guys I grew up with um, are still close to me this day. We all went to elementary and middle and high school together, but sometimes they just want to do random things during the week and they don't understand that like, hey, you know, I, I got to do surgery. I got to do this. And, you know, then you got to deal with them and chores and errands, you know, groceries don't buy themselves. The, the litter box doesn't clean itself. You know, somebody has to do all of those things, regardless of what kind of day you had in the hospital. Um, and then last but not least, again, I always put yourself on there, you know, if anything like me, you know, I'm a divorced dad now and I worry, am, am I a good enough dad? Do I spend enough time with my kids? Am, am I a good enough role model for them? Um, you know, what kind of brother am I? What kind of son am I? Am I making myself available for, for my own family? Like these kind of thoughts weigh you down. And, you know, this is just kind of an informal list, but these are the kind of things that I always talk to people about to just be cognizant and aware of. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, I can, I can relate to many of these and I have friends, uh, as well as, you know, other friends that are residents, you know, orthopedic surgery residents that, uh, deal with a lot of these things, especially, you know, uh, you know, kids, spouse, significant other feelings of, of self-doubt and saying, oh man, like, you know, my, you know, I should be able to do this by now. And you, you know, you kind of just start to mentally burn yourself out. And I definitely think it's important to be able to recognize a lot of these things. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you is yeah. what are some, what are some things that, that you can do to try to alleviate burnout or recognize it? Or what are some of the things that, you know, uh, like tangible things that us as residents or, you know, there's some attendings that listen to this as well and medical students, what are some things we can do to try to combat this burnout? Yeah. Um, I wanted to just, just talk a little bit about what the burnout does. Um, yeah. Sure. Some of the ramifications of it. So you can see here, there are both personal and professional ramifications um, on the personal side. You know, there's broken relationships, alcohol and substance abuse, depression, anxiety, suicide is obviously a very major thing. Um, it came to light with Dr. Lorna Breen, the, the ER doc in New York during the pandemic. Um, at our hospital, we've had three physicians commit suicide in the last two years, unfortunately, which can have a huge toll mentally, um, but also professionally in, in terms of patient care and finance finances. Um, there's obviously a higher risk of uh, medical errors, decreased quality of care poor patient satisfaction, decreased productivity and professional effort, and high physician turnover. I mean, if people are quitting because yeah. they're burnt out, I mean, that's a big problem. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about with burnout is 
you know, I don't think the problem is the people who are burnt out and quit and leave. The problem is the rest of us, right? Because we're all on this spectrum and we all come to work every day. And if you're burnt out, but you're quote unquote, able to be tough enough to come to work and tolerate it, sometimes that's almost worse because you, you know, those people who I'm talking about, who they're just not pleasant to be around. They're irritated. They're not nice. They're not friendly. They're cynical and they come to work every day. And as long as they're seeing patients and doing procedures and, you know, they're not stealing money or doing anything illegal, like nobody says anything, but in actuality, burnout is contagious. It's like a virus, you know? And what happens when you're in an OR and the attending comes in and is just like yelling at everybody. What does that do to everybody else in the room? It tends to make them cynical and jaded yes, and, and want to yell at people. So the problem with burnout isn't so much the people who quote unquote can't handle it. It's actually everybody else who can handle it because if they're not handling it appropriately, you know, most of how we deal with burnout is with anger and frustration and negative things that we permeate throughout our environment. So that's always something um, to consider because, you know, when I was coming up, the culture was, well, such and such couldn't handle it and they quit or they changed jobs or they left residency. But that's probably almost a good thing because now they're removed from the system and the environment and they can go and get help and different things. It's all of us who kind of just drag to work every day and tough it out that can be the bigger issue from a large academic health system. Cause you can't really quantify necessarily, you know, how people being burned out can affect their environment, but it's definitely there. Um, a little word about suicide. As you see, there are several hundred of physicians that commit suicide each year, um, which is, is quite staggering. That's probably like a med school class and a half every year yeah, on average. Cool that disappears. Um, and so that's very unfortunate. We see our anesthesia colleagues tend to be at high risk, mostly because of the nature of what they do, but also because of the um, medications and such uh, that they have. Every- ah, that would make sense. Cause I, I was wondering why, you know, typically maybe, uh, you know, I may just be thinking about this wrong, but when you think of anesthesia, you think of, you know, kind of relaxed lifestyle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like leave at one o'clock. But, you know, I, it is true. Definitely they have access to different types of um, medications and maybe just kind of the work they're doing, maybe a little bit more of a stressful job, depending on, I guess, the complexity of the patient. Some, but I, that, that surprised me when I saw that. Yeah, um, there's definitely a lot of access issues to, to narcotics and sedatives and different things. Um, I don't think. Um, I, I think it's, it's probably more stressful, more numbers of suicides in surgical subspecialties. Um, but I think the anesthesia folks are at highest risk, um, just because of, you know, some things related to their field. Um, so organizational systemic level interventions we know are, are the most bang for your buck when you're talking about trying to mitigate the effects of burnout. I think part of the culture and healthcare has been unfortunate in the sense that we create an environment that's very toxic and very chaotic and very fragmented. And then we leave it up to the individual to ensure that they can tough it out and they can survive it. You know, so a lot of the interventions for burnout historically have been things like yoga and stress reduction and mindfulness and, you know, that sort of thing, which puts the onus on the individual 
which is fine. Those things are helpful, but it's kind of the canary in the coal mine analogy, right? You can't just make the canary stronger. You have to make sure the coal mine isn't eluding methane gas and it's not a toxic environment. So you have to do a little bit of both. Um, so there are coalitions out there which are, are great now to improve well-being um, and, and really address physician well-being. This is something that we did uh, in 2021 in San Diego last September at the previous academy. Um, we had a panel to address burnout, and I was the moderator for that. And we had some kind of distinguished speakers nationally um, to talk about their experience and the different aspects of addressing physician burnout. These are kind of the big things in terms of priorities uh, to address physician burnout. So, um, you know, improving workload efficiencies and providing appropriate support. So that's, you know, making sure things run smoothly, decreasing the amount of work physicians have to do, but also um, making sure physicians are doing the right work. So you can imagine as a resident, you're doing all sorts of things, most of which specifically when you're on call, shouldn't be your responsibility. There's a lot of non-clinical administrative things that you do. You're ordering things, you're making oh, yeah. calls, you're, you're calling outside doctors back and parents back and patients back, which are not necessary of an orthopedic surgeon. Um, so we have to make sure that the workload is not just enough, but it's appropriate. Work culture and environment, so ensuring people have appropriate leadership and communication skills, that we have a workplace that's collegial and that we're kind of growing and nurturing our trainees as opposed to using them as mules and then just strapping them with more work to do. Work-life integration, flexibility, and autonomy, we touched on this. We have to ensure that people aren't just surgeons, but they're human beings who happen to be surgeons, right? And we have to ensure that we integrate their work into their regular lives and give them the control to do so. And meaning in work, this is a big thing. So obviously 100% of the time, you can't just do what you want to do. But if you can do something at least one day a week as part of your job, which can align with things that bring you meaning, that has definitely been shown to decrease the risk of burnout. So for me personally, uh, I do a lot of telemedicine and a lot of telehealth. I work with our telehealth folks. And I also do this role as director of clinician well-being because it means something to me. It brings me joy, but it also is in alignment with what the hospital needs, wants, and benefits from. So them allowing me to do this part of the time has been very, very helpful for me because you know I still go to work. I still see patients. I still do surgery, but I also have about a day, day and a half a week where I can do some very meaningful work. And if everybody had that opportunity to do something that was particularly meaning for, meaningful for them, um, I think that would be key. Yeah. So individually, there's a lot of things that one can do. And again, I tend to shy away from things that focus on like stress reduction and mindfulness and yoga um, and, and anxiety reduction, because I feel like that's almost like putting the blame on the individual. That's just my personal belief. I feel like doing those things suggests that, okay, well, you're not strong enough, quote unquote, or you're not, you know, able to handle the rigors of healthcare. But I feel like giving people tools that are more practical and giving people tools to be able to deal with their environment is much more 
effective and it also makes them feel better because it makes them seem like you're working with them. So managing your time is key. The Eisenhower decision matrix is huge. So this is something that a lot of residents can use just to manage their time. You think about all the things you have to do and how important they are versus how urgent they are. So obviously the things that are really important and really urgent, your patient crises, deadlines, pressing problems, those are the things you're just going to have to do, right? You just have to find some time to do it. Things that aren't so urgent um, but are still important are going to be more your personal stuff, exercising, family time, recreation. So these are going to be the things that you schedule time to do, right? So it's not going to be necessarily pressing, but you should find some time to do these sorts of things. Things that aren't urgent, things that aren't important, um, you definitely want to try to just get rid of them. So that's going to be your social media office work, watching TV, obviously often, you know, watching TV can be relaxing and can be a good thing, but I would probably just do half hour a day or something like that, just to unwind. You don't want to be binging your favorite Netflix show for or five hours a day. <laughs> you got a lot of other stuff to do. And, you know, social media, I mean, just think of how many times you get on Instagram or TikTok or something. Next thing you know, you look up 45 minutes has elapsed because you're just oh, yeah. down the rabbit hole and you're looking, at, oh, what person just brought this new car? Okay, they just got engaged. Oh, look at this baby shower. And next thing you know, two hours has gone by. And, you know, not to say it's wrong to keep up with your friends and just kind of stay relevant personally, but you just have to put a nice little check rein on it. The screen time can be huge. And then this is something that, you know, I've had to learn the hard way. So for things that are urgent, but not so important, specifically emails. And we talked about this before, phone calls, meetings, interruptions, unfortunately, as a trainee, there's just going to be lots of things that you just have to do that you just get dumped on for to do. Um, but as you get more and more senior, you get newer in your career when you start your practice, if you can find somebody, and I wouldn't say find someone to dump things on, but I would find people to delegate things to, you know, when I first started, I was very kind of in the mindset, okay, well, if I don't do it or I don't handle it, then it's not going to get done appropriately. You know, I was just kind of a control freak. But sometimes you just got to get let go of that control because it's just weighing you down. So now if I get an email, sometimes I'll forward it on to my secretary, I'll forward it on to my athletic trainer or my physician assistant and just let them handle it, you know, and, you know, that's their scope of work. They're there to assist me and, and do a lot of those things for the patients. And I try to focus on the phone calls and the meetings and the emails that only require like an attending orthopedic surgeon and everything else. I, I just try to let other people handle it because there's not enough time in the day um, just to do everything. Things about delegating in life um, as a resident can be tough because you don't have a lot of money, uh, but childcare meal prep, um, doing chores, errands, yard work, all of these things. Um, again, as a resident, you may not have the funds, but if you can scrape things together, it's a very good investment to think about. Even just having somebody come clean your apartment or your house once a month or once every two months, it's something um, because- you Oh, know, it helps. Yeah. I mean, it yeah, totally it helps, helps yeah. unless, unless <laughs> cleaning a dirty bathroom honestly brings you joy and happiness. <laughs> If it does, A, more power to you than you can clean your house. But, you know, these are the things that we just have to do, right? I mean, I love eating, but I don't like cooking and I don't like cleaning up after I'm done eating, you know? So finding people that you can delegate anything to, even if it's one tiny little chore, um, I think it can be helpful. Yeah, I remember I remember either hearing something or reading something, um, something along the lines of, I guess, how much do you think an hour of your time is worth, you know, right, is worth, right. you know, is it? worth, you know, 30 bucks that you could spend and have somebody do, you know, whatever else it is that, that they need that you may need them to do and, and spend that hour doing something else more meaningful toward you, 
or you know kind of how you know just kind of weighing like okay well how much of an hour is my time really you know really worth you know how much time would i be spending cooking four meals would i spend five hours a week versus 40 bucks or 50 bucks to do this meal prep and now i have another five hours to do whatever else i need to do you know the more i guess more important or the things that you said that you need to do you know yeah and you know cody it's all about opportunity costs you know we we tend to if you're anything like me, you tend to be like, oh man, I'm not spending money on that, you know, but when you really look at it, you know, what that 50 bucks or that hundred bucks, like, what do you get in return? It's not just, oh, well, somebody's going to clean my house or prep my meals. It could be, well, now I have two hours of my life to exercise, or now I have, you know, an hour and a half to, to play with my kids or talk to my family members or, or, or take a nap or read or, you know, and, and, and time is precious, you know, as you know, it doesn't, you don't get more of it. Uh, you have less and less time on this planet every day that goes by. So finding ways that you can focus on the things that truly bring you happiness and joy and letting other people help you with other things can be very, very key. Um, moving gears to money. We all talk about it, think about it. Um, it's, it's a big, uh, thing that, that, that pushes us along. Um, but you know, there's lots of things that you want to spend your money on and things like long-term planning, college fund, different types of insurances, paying back student loans, good investments, an affordable home and an affordable car. You know, as a sports guy, you know, I had attendings when I was a fellow that had nice cars and nice clothes and nice homes. And that's all I wanted, you know, now I know that, you know, the more money you make, the more problems you have. And if you have expensive things, they are expensive to take care of. So you want to watch out for going out and buying an $80,000 car and a 10,000 square foot home and a $3,000 suit, um, you know, and uh, all the fancy jewelry and the big risky investments that we tend to do. um, Because again, that can just cause you more problems. And um, when you think about income and how we make money, this is something I was never taught. So active versus passive income. Oh, active I love in- this. Yeah, this is a great little schematic. Active income is basically when you trade your time and your energy for money. Um, and passive income is when you make money off of things that come in passively. So you don't necessarily have to be there to collect rent from somebody or a subscription service you have or stocks or shares in a company that you get. And, you know, most of us work actively. We get up, we go to work, we make money and we come home. The problem with that is the potential is very linear, meaning it's directly proportional to your time and your energy. And unfortunately, like we talked about before, that income will stop if you can't work you always wind up chasing income and that's the relationship you have. You'll be financially shackled to your job. And the biggest thing is that you won't have enough time in the day to enjoy the money that you're making. So if you have all this nice stuff, you have to trade your time and your energy more to be able to afford those things. And like I said, time doesn't grow on trees. So it comes to a point where all you're doing is working and you you may not even be enjoying all the nice stuff that you have to pay for and understanding how passive income can help. And again, those are the big things we talk about. Understanding how passive income can help is that you can now find ways to work, but also having extra income coming, buffering what you're doing so that you don't have to work so actively. So if you have one stream of active income and that's all you have, then that's all you're going to be doing is working. But if you have several other passive income streams, 
that can be very helpful because now you can have exponential growth. You can create wealth. Um, you can be financially independent to an extent. Let's just say your primary hustle isn't going the way you would like it. And you want to, let's say right now, I want to cut down to three days a week. My chair will be like, okay, well, that's fine. We're only going to pay you three days a week salary. Right. But if I have other things on the side where I'm making, you know, my YouTube channel blows up and people are listening to my podcast and things and I have extra revenue coming in, then I have the ability to cut back on my active job and, and, and I won't be penalized for it because I'll still have that income. And that time that you'll get will now be yours because you can really enjoy what you're doing because you always have that income coming in. And the way we think about happiness and money, as you can see here is, you know, obviously there's some level of money that you need to make to be happy, but it gets to a point where it kind of levels out. Meaning if you make a hundred, 200 grand a year, and all of a sudden I double your salary, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be twice as happy. It just means you're going to make more money. Um, so you have to understand if you're on that active income stream and you're constantly trying to make more and more and more money, not only is it going to affect you know, how the ability you are to actually enjoy that money and whether you're shackled to your job or not, it may not actually improve your happiness whatsoever, even though you're spending more time. Same thing with how much money you spend and being fulfilled. There's a certain amount of money you have to spend just to survive and be comfortable, maybe even live luxuriously, but eventually it gets to be enough. And if you just keep spending more money and buying nice things, you're not going to get any more fulfilled. And, and it actually, it can decrease your fulfillment because like I said, the more expensive things that you own, the more expensive it is to maintain all those things and it creates more stress for you. This is a very interesting schematic. Um, Frederick Herzberg was a psychologist back in the 50s and he studied kind of blue collar steel workers in, in Pittsburgh area, looking at the kind of things that made them happy. And he kind of broke them down into two groups. I label them as inspirational factors and motivational factors. So your inspirational factors are gonna be things that are intrinsic to the work itself. So how you're going to be achieved, uh, I'm sorry, how are you going to uh, achieve status at work? how you're going to be recognized at work, the actual work you're doing, the advancement potentials and growth opportunities. And, you know, these are inspirational factors. And if you improve these factors, these are the things that are directly correlative to increased job satisfaction, whereas motivational factors tend to be external to the work. So company policies, what hours you're going to work, who you're going to work with, who's going to supervise you, how much money you're going to make, where your office is going to be. And we know that if you have poor motivational factors, that'll decrease your job satisfaction as well. But the corollary isn't true. So if I improve your motivational factors, it doesn't necessarily make you more satisfied. It just makes you less dissatisfied with your job. Huh. And that's very interesting because if I come up to you and say, hey, I have a new job for you, the first thing you're going to ask me is like, how much money am I going to make? And where's my office going to be? And how many hours am I going to work? And that's what we tend to focus on. I don't know if you're getting those locum tenens emails just yet about all these opportunities. Oh, I'm getting some like, now. Right. Now that matched. <laughs> in the subject of the email, it's always what? How much money? $650,000 plus with great schools and blah, blah, blah. Nowhere in that email does it say how you're going to be recognized for the work you do and, and how responsible you're going to be for stuff and what are the opportunities for personal advancement and professional growth. And we know those are the things that are most important to work. If I come up to you and say, you know, Cody, I know you hate your job right now. It's terrible. 
but I'm going to give you $200,000 a year instead of like $60,000 a year. And I'm going to make sure you have a great office with a big window and you only work three days a week. Well, guess what? You're probably still going to hate your job. You're now just going to be less likely to quit and you're going to be more likely to show up so you can collect that paycheck and enjoy that nice office. But if I don't actually focus on the work itself and your ability to grow and advance in that job, you're not going to be any happier. And unfortunately, the knee-jerk reaction when people aren't happy at work is to give them more money. The problem with that is it doesn't, A, affect the actual work that they're doing and why they don't like their job. And B, those types of motivational things tend to be temporary, meaning I'm going to have to keep giving you a bonus and keep giving you an increase in salary. Whereas if I find a way to really connect your job to you in a meaningful way, the likelihood that I'm going to have to keep doing that over and over is pretty low. Obviously, I may have to at some point. So thinking about what truly inspires you versus what motivates you is very key because we tend to be poked and prodded by things that are actually external to the work that we're doing. Um, and this is a very good slide and I, and I enjoyed reading about it. Lastly, we'll just go through a couple of things. We talked about passive income. Thinking about alternative income streams can be very helpful, whether creating a service or a passion project, selling something. These are all things residents and trainees can think about doing, investing in real estate. Even if mm. it's something where you get $10 a month, it's something, right? You don't have to hit a home run and invest in a future startup that's going to become Amazon <laughs> and make it worth your while. I mean, just think of anything that you can do that you enjoy that brings you happiness that you could potentially make money off of. Alternative revenue streams specifically for physicians. So yeah. there's so much knowledge and so much information swirling around in all of our heads at any given time. And again, if you're not seeing patients and you're not doing procedures, the likelihood that you can provide value to your organization is pretty low. So now there are all these other things. There's so many companies out there that need provider to provider e-consults to be done or patients to get second opinions. I do motivational speaking now. We talked about social media. You may not want to just be looking up what your high school friends are doing, but if you can <laughs> use social media to market yourself, to, to spread knowledge and information to people that need it, make videos, things like that, you could potentially get revenue from that. People are working with insurance companies and doing utilization management, case review, and then consulting. There's so many companies out there that are in the healthcare space who have no frontline healthcare workers as any of their leadership. And they'll tap you to say, hey, you know, let's do a conference call for an hour and just talk to us about our idea or about our project. And they'll pay you for that because they're hungry for that knowledge that you have. And most of a physician, us physicians, have no idea what to do with all of that if we're outside of our main gig. Um, I talked a little bit about social media. This is something that a lot of youngsters uh, who are training can get involved in. This is things that I do. I send information and knowledge to my patients. So we talk about surgery. We talk about how to put on a brace. I talk about uh, youth sports topics. I do things for medical students and, and pre-med folks who are interested in learning about orthopedics. These are all ways, again, to move knowledge, move information to the people that it needs to get to um, in a way that can be you know, profitable or even not so like the top two videos. I mean, these are just things I send them my patients. I don't make any money off of these, but right. I send them, I send them a brief video on how to use their brace. So they don't call my office, you know, every day asking yeah, me save to time. the brace. So You're saving time. Yeah. Rather than me, my PA or my athletic trainer have to explain this to hundreds and hundreds of patients. 
I took, you know, an hour, I made one video and now I send it to every patient who gets a knee brace. Same thing for what to expect in the day of ACL surgery. That's basically everything that I say when I consent people and, you know, in, in, in pre-op trying to consent somebody who's hungry, who's tired, who's anxious, they're going to sign anything. You can put anything in front of them. They'll sign it. They're not even absorbing anything you're telling them. Oh yeah. But, but now I send it to them the night before when it's calm, it's quiet. They just had dinner. They can pause it, share it with people. And then they show up to pre-op and they, they've been primed and they understand what I'm going to say. So I don't even have to go through the whole spiel. I just mark their limb, do a couple of necessary things, and I'm out of there. And it saves a lot of time for me. It saves time for the nurses and anesthesia who have to wait for me to get consent. It has a lot of potential benefits. So these are just some outside of the box things that I do, you know, not necessarily purely for revenue, but also to help streamline the care that I deliver. And these are just a couple of other things. Um, this how to shadow a doctor. Um, that's my most watched video on my YouTube channel. Really? Yeah. It's gotten about 11,000 views, which isn't much, but for me, it's, it's a good ton. amount. It's more it's, than, it's more yeah. than any video I have. Right. You know, so, I, and this is just something I made because I get a lot of med students and college students emailing me asking me, not only can they shadow me, but like, what should they do? What should they wear? How should they act? And blah, blah, blah. So I just made this video. Now people can digest it and learn about it. And you know, it made me feel good to be able to provide information in a way um, that that young folks can digest. Yeah, I think, you know, that is all, all all good information, especially, you know, the being able to make alternative streams of income, and especially with the passive income. I, I really I kind of dive deeply into that. And I, I like to research things on that and, and figure out uh, what are some different things that, that you can do so you're not so dependent on you know on on funds from necessarily a salary that you can kind of have and live the lifestyle um, that that you know you want to live whatever it may be right. and and I think we went over a good amount of uh, information for the the burnout things that we can do personal things that we could do systems that we can try to incorporate in our life um, talked about different streams of income. Is there is there anything else that you want the listeners, you know, Dr. Tana, I, I, again, I really appreciate you coming on a podcast, but is there anything else that you want the listeners to uh, take away from listening to this podcast? It can be about anything. Yeah, um, I know we've d- dived into a lot of or dove into a lot of content. Um, basically, you know, I, I've worked with a life coach in the past and um, and his suggestion was really to try to figure out what my calling was, who I am as a person, what really inspires me, why do I do, you know, what I do. And I think a lot of people aren't very forthright with that information. I think we talk about our rationale for doing what we did in a way that we think people want to hear and that we think is acceptable. You know, when you read personal statements of people going into orthopedics or going into medicine, a lot of them tend to be like the same. And, you know, we want to fall in line and not be an outlier. But what I always tell people is all of this well-being stuff starts with you. And it's all about how you view the world and how you view your place in the world. And it all starts with how you view yourself and what makes you happy and what you want for yourself. And I always encourage people to be open and honest. And I always say, you know, there are three reasons that people talk about, like why we do the things that we do. One of the main reasons is we talk about, like one of the main reasons is what we tell other people. 
why we do what we do. The second big bucket of things is what we tell ourselves, tell, tell ourselves why we do what we do. And then the last thing is the actual reasons why we do what we do and what inspires us. And it wasn't until I worked with my life coach um, a couple of years ago and really dug deep into myself and who I am and tried to be emotionally intelligent and self-aware for a lot of the reasons I shared with you, Cody, and, and the listeners as to kind of why I went into medicine, why I went into orthopedics, why I went into to peed sports, you know, we all have a story. And if there's anything you've learned from listening to me <laughs> ramble on for the past almost two hours, I think <laughs> you should really just dig deep into who you are as, as cringe and as awkward as it seems. Because again, all our years of training, it does not teach us or encourage us to be open and vulnerable and honest with ourselves and the people around us. It's, it teaches us to kind of, you know, put up a little bit of a front to put a particular version of yourself out to the world that you think or hope people want to see, or you think they need to see. Um, but basically I would encourage everybody to put your true self out to the world because that's the only way that you can really find true happiness, whether or not you know, you have a great job or you get paid $5 million or $500,000, or you have, you know, the best setup and the best clinic and the best OR. Like if you don't know on a day-to-day -day basis, why you're walking around doing what you're doing and you're not honest about it with yourself and willing to share that with other people, then you're definitely not going to be happy no matter what. So hopefully you learned something, um, from me in this podcast, um, Hopefully what I said maybe inspired or touched a few people um, to, to think about what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. And just think about your true calling, your purpose, and just focusing on being happy and enjoying the little time you have on this planet. So that's all I wanted to share. Um, and thanks again, Cody. I, I really appreciate your time and, and letting me share my story um, and get the word out there. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. It was, a, it was a pleasure to have you on and uh, we appreciate your words of wisdom and many gems that you have dropped throughout this entire podcast. Now, for those listening that may want to follow you on social media or check out your YouTube channel, um, where, where can they kind of follow you at and, and, and where can they find your, your content or your information? Yeah. So one of my startup companies, um, which is basically an all-encompassing youth sports website with a lot of content is called SportsLink MD. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-L-I-N-K-M-D. So that's the name of uh, an Instagram page, my YouTube channel, um, and also our website is sportslinkmd.com um, to find more stuff about youth sports, but also professional well-being as it relates to being a physician and as it relates to being an athlete um, and just different kinds of content that's very exciting. So thanks again for having me. And uh, hopefully we can have future conversations in the future. Well, Dr. Tonda, again, it's been a pleasure having you on. For those that are listening, uh, please go and leave a review and let us know how much you like this episode. Uh, again, go follow Dr. Tonda, check out his different uh, his different websites and uh, YouTube channel and different uh, different areas uh, that you could follow him. And again, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. 
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you enjoyed this. This was really valuable to me. I learned a lot. I'm going to go back and take some more notes with this. This is kind of our businessy area of orthopedics, which again is very important to know about. So if you enjoyed these episodes, please go and leave us a review in iTunes or however you listen to us. That would help out a bunch. We are trying to get to 150. And please also subscribe to us on YouTube. We are trying to get to a thousand subscribers. We are getting closer and closer by the week, but we'd love to try to hit that number. So until next time, we will uh, see you all soon.